Hey everyone, we're back with a new season of the Lit Review Podcast. It's been a minute since we've recorded, right Paige? You know, it, <laughs> it feels like a lifetime has passed. Uh, so much has happened, but here we are. We're back. Well, I just want to say that it's super exciting to be recording this podcast again with you. Our world has changed so much since our last episode was released in February of 2019. Uh, and when I think back to when we launched this podcast back in 2017, I remember that it was released in response to the election of 45, right? Yeah, Uh you know, it might sound familiar. It was this moment where we had thousands of people all around the country mobilizing in the streets. And I remember this question that I think about a lot, which is, you know, how do we grow our movements to scale? And a part of that work includes political education. And so this was our effort at offering one small tool to help folks study and learn um, from the, the, the books and ideas that, that have come from before and that we can apply to today. So uh, here we are yet again with thousands of people if, and many, many more, right, taking to the streets on a regular basis. And with 45, we're, I think, 11 days out from the election as of this morning. Yeah, I know. I, I, I really remember. I remember we were in these organizing meetings together with a lot of our closest comrades at that time and just like exchanging ideas and like different ways that we could prepare for that backlash of white supremacy and authoritarianism that we were going to be facing under this administration. And of course, you know, no spoiler, we we all know how accurate that was and continues to be. And so it only feels right that we're relaunching this podcast as Right. Like you said, we near the eve of the next presidential election and we're finding ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic and a re-energized movement and uprisings for black lives. You know, it's definitely overwhelming. I'm not going to lie. It has been an overwhelming year um, and there's a lot that's really scary, but there's also so much that I find hope in. And that's just this constant roller coaster ride that I'm that I'm in. Um, that I find myself bouncing between the highs and the lows, sometimes between every hour. I mean, you've got you know, we've been months into this pandemic and and uh, we're now seeing really, we're back to similar rates of, of, of positive tests coming in for here in Chicago and throughout Illinois. You know, I think we're all sort of bracing ourselves for another round of, of shelter in place. And it, it feels like we've taken just steps back. But at the same time, we saw, you know, incredible mutual aid efforts pop up and mutual aid became this thing that more and more people were talking about and, and organizing around. And I think it was so important that that happened and it created this network and this this politic of care for each other and independence from the state that I think was really essential. And then we, you know, this uprising has happened where you mm. have people all around the world. I, I you know, I don't want to ramble for too long, but, you know, I'm from rural Vermont and I, I, I went, I was home for a very brief amount of time this summer and I saw farms in the middle of nowhere Vermont with massive Black Lives Matter signs. I saw multiple protests. Like I just, you know, in <laughs> tiny towns, right? Um, you know, it, it's been incredible. And you have, you know, abolition and defund our popular mainstream ideas, but also what do they mean <laughs> right now, right? Mm. Like you also have people saying, yeah, defund the police, but that doesn't actually mean cut their budget. So it's this interesting moment where, um, you know, more the, the problem of anti-blackness, the problem of police violence, the problems of capitalism are much more on center stage. And we're in this really, it's important that we think through and define what these things mean. And so I'm excited that we're, we're back with, with season three. Yeah, awesome. Um, we're also, you know, I'm excited about how we're going to be doing these intros where we are going to try to add some local updates about what's going on that, uh, that are time specific. And because right now, you know, we're in the midst of our in Chicago, our budget process. And yesterday, Lori Lightfoot, the, our mayor, released her recommended budget. And I'm still getting a handle on the numbers. There's a cut to police in it, but it is mostly cutting vacancy positions. So the it's apparently been a pattern of funding empty positions in the Chicago Police Department that never actually have to get filled, and but they get that money anyways, and so they're cutting that. So it doesn't stop anything. And then actually the percent of 
at least the public safety budget, um, the percent of that uh, that is for police as opposed to like violence prevention programs has gone up. Um, hopefully by next week I have a sense of, of the overall budget if it's gone up or not. I believe it has by about a percentage point. Mm. Um, and so what, you know that's not that's not defund. Although we shouldn't be surprised. Our mayor here in Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, has said explicitly she will never on her watch defund the police, um, and she repeated that again on during her budget address yesterday. Mm-hmm. So now that Lori has presented her ideal budget, which is one of austerity and ongoing policing. It is now city council, which has 50 aldermen here in Chicago, that have to approve a budget. And so um, as aldermen, they're able to suggest and make changes and vote on a revised version of the budget. And so that will be happening over the next several weeks. And by law, they're required to pass the budget by December 31st. So it should be done by then. And so now we'll be uh, putting more pressure on aldermen and continuing to do general outreach and focusing on building power with folks. Wow. Yeah, I cannot believe the audacity of Lori Lightfoot. I, I also can't believe the audacity of people that voted for Lori Lightfoot. I think that we were, you know, during No Cop Academy, we were saying stop Lightfoot. Like this, this person cannot enter office. It's going to be worse than Rom. And lo and behold, we are seeing that she is worse than Rom. Let's get to the podcast episode. What do we got on deck for folks to listen to today? Okay, so in this episode, we are talking with Bettina Johnson, who's a Chicago-based organizer, and she's walking us through the book Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, which is by one of my favorite authors, Robin D.G. Kelly. Awesome. And Bettina Johnson is a born and raised Chicagoan, an alum of Chicago Public Schools, a co-founder of Liberation Library, which is an abolitionist books to incarcerated young people project. And she's a core organizing member of Chicago Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus of the DSA, uh, and that's the Democratic Socialists of America. We also spent uh, a couple years together working in Asada's Daughter, so it was great to kind of catch up and talk through political ideas again. And so today we're digging into this question, what can the Alabama Communist Party in the 1930s teach us right now about our social movements? I really appreciated this conversation with Bettina because she really breaks down the tactics and the strategy behind a very complicated approach to community organizing. And I love that she ends this episode with her opinion on on how that still could have looked different than even in its very specific context. Yeah, there's a lot that I really appreciated about it. I mean, it has specific tactics that she lifts up as examples from the book that really stuck out to her of like, how, how do you organize around really radical ideas and ideals in practical, grounded ways in community. And then also, I really appreciated her take on, on the role of someone who's not from a place organizing in a place and like what does that look like how, how do you do that what should you do what should you not do and I think that was really relevant to right now especially because I know of a lot of people that were like I'm gonna go to the wherever the hot spot is right I'm gonna go to Minneapolis I'm gonna go here so this is going to be episode one of the third season I'm so thrilled to be back we're gonna learn a lot together please tune in next week it'll be we'll be back here same place same time and enjoy the show You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt. We must disobey. We must agitate. We must escalate. We must break. We must create. We must evolve. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations caged in all the homes. Let's get into it. I'm so excited to talk to you, Bettina. We're going to be discussing the book Hammer and Ho by Robin D.G. Kelly. Thank you so much for being with us virtually today. How you doing? I'm 
super tired, but super excited to be with you all virtually to talk about this book. It's been on my to-do list to read for a very long time. Uh, to kick us off, do you mind telling us a little bit more about who you are, what you do, and why? So my name is Bettina, born and raised in the city of Chicago. I've done a few things, but one of the things that I lead with is that I'm a co-founding member of an organization called Liberation Library. We send books to young people who are incarcerated in the state of Illinois. We're in all of the um, IDJJ prisons, so those are just youth prisons and a growing number of uh, detention centers across the state. And it's an abolitionist organization. And so when we talk about abolition, uh, we mean it in the expansive sense, especially in the sense of like, we're building um, alternatives, but also when we come together, we view it as like a almost an insurgent abolition, um, like an insurgent action. Yeah, we, we're not only thinking like theorizing abolition. We believe that like when we show up and do what we we say that we're going to do for young people when it comes to like material provision of books, journals, um, games, like whatever they ask us, um, that it's like us prefiguring a world where it's like police free communities and a world where prisons eventually will be considered completely obsolete. Um, so anyone that comes through for any type of programming with us will get a dose of some kind of abolitionist thought and like participate in some kind of practice, right? That's like rooted in that and rooted in showing up um, for young people that are incarcerated. So yeah, can you tell us more about what led you to read this book? Because it is about the Alabama communists um, during the Great Depression, which is the subtitle of the book. But from what I had heard from other organizers is that this was a great book to think through what it actually meant and what it actually looked like to build a multiracial, um, like working class consciousness that was rooted in um, like cultural practices of black folks in the South and was centered on actual like working poor and poor people, um, which is very different from, I think, what a lot of at least for me, I'll speak for me, which is very different from um, the ways that I was uh, being exposed to like communism or uh, Marxist-Leninist thought. And so I wanted to to read more about that. And also there was this really striking scene and I think Charles Mills' book on guns, where he opens the book talking to somebody in the South and um, their theory of change was like V.I. Lenin's um, What is to be done in a gun? And so I was like, hold on, why why is he reading Lenin? <laughs> you know what I mean? So like I wanted to know more about how that actually happened, how there were a bunch of um, Lenin reading, gun toting, <laughs> older people like in the South talking to a new generation of civil rights folks um, about their theory of change. Yes, that sounds incredible. So let's let's dive into this book. Can you just say a little bit more on why Kelly thinks that this history is really crucial for all of us to know? Not necessarily in preparation for this book, but for whatever reason, I encountered a an essay that was written by Kelly, like maybe in the 80s. And he opened this essay with this really amazing quote, and I wish that I had it in front of me, but he was talking, the quote was talking about... Um, how a lot of things are missed when you only see the like spectacular aspects of um of like movements um or yeah of movements basically and uh the person that he's quoting is saying that it's like the cliffs or the shores of the continent um but the actual like like you're like when you only focus on the cliffs and the shores of social movements, which are these like spectacular, um, like crests, right? Um, you're missing like the continent of all the other stuff that had to happen, including like the, the, uh, all of the, the hidden or unrecognizable forms of resistance. And so the thing that I got so much from this book, and it was apparent that he was digging for this, um, for these things. And the reason why there are so many abbreviations, there are so many, I mean, it's like super well-researched and he's citing everything and he's going through, um, so many main, like main, uh, primary sources. Um, and I feel like the reason why he's doing that is because he's trying to uncover like this continent of resistance, 
um, that's so frequently overlooked or misrecognized. Um, so that's what I, I get a, a lot out of this book is um, like he's and he even talk he even talks about it. So the the chapter one is an invisible army. Um, so he's talking about all of these. Uh, forms and ways to resist um, that folks who lived in terror, like uh, like who were terrorized, not lived in terror, but who were terrorized, um, like their forms of resistance, basically. And yeah, and it's a whole book full of, um, including like strategies, like super interesting strategies, um, tactics and things like that. So it's it's a really impressive history. Why Birmingham? Why did Birmingham in, in Alabama, why was that chosen by the Communist Party uh, to sort of settle in to do this organizing? What made them choose that city? So at the beginning, at the very beginning of this book, um, Kelly talks about the, so I don't know if Kelly's a communist, but he seems to be a materialist like in the Marxist way. So he actually sets out uh, the basis of the book with the like situation, uh, the like historical and material situation of what was going on in Birmingham specifically and how Birmingham was industrializing, how people were coming from all over the South to Birmingham um, and how just basically it was a burgeoning city. Um, but the reason why the CP, why the CPUSA came to the South was because um, there was the Third International of the Comintern, and that just means the Communist International. Um, and the Third International is just like the third formation. The first one was like Marx, uh, Bakunin, and, you know, like the first Workingmen's um, Union International Conference. Um, I don't know what the second one was, but the third one, <laughs> the third one included a decision by the Comintern, which is... Uh, like the body that that guides um, the international communist strategy. Um, and so a decision was made there to invest in the uh, in the idea of like that there's a colonized black nation within the United States and that it's on the communist international to help like seed revolution and to to specifically, um, emphasize the uh, self-determination of those Black people in the American South. And so there was a strategy to send a bunch of white people <laughs> from um, other parts of CPUSA down South. Uh, but those particular organizers, like, and then this is another reason why I wanted to read this book too, is because I've been told repeatedly that the people who could actually organize were the communists. And so when there was uh, the Red Scare, that like militancy and actual knowledge of like how to build power kind of got squashed um, with the Red Scare and McCarthyism for labor, for the labor, labor movement, basically. And um, so anyway, they actually sent pretty decent organizers that didn't think that poor black people in the South were idiots. <laughs> Very simply. <laughs> um, and so they like were actually really good at finding um, people that they wanted to build with and who may maybe were informal leaders like in the community and, and started there with, with those folks and weren't condescending and actually like actually in good faith were, were building with people um, and had this flexibility. So anyway, I'm answering more than the Birmingham question though. <laughs> but yeah. My follow-up question is around, yes, like, can you describe what that organizing looked like? How are folks organizing? I don't know if that includes the Invisible Army piece. Like, it was that a, a shift? So it talked about how the communists seized a bunch of opportunities because it was during the Great Depression. That's when, um, that's what this history book is mainly talking about. And so during the Great Depression, there were people that were all out of work, um, like severe unemployment. Um, folks wanted either wages or food or work. Um, and even when the government was coming through with support programs, they were not equitably like, you know, per, like appro appropriated and that's not right, but they weren't equitably like dispersed to, um, to people, especially if you're like 
poor working class uh, black people right in the South and Jim Crow South. And, uh, and so the communists were very savvy in first like talking specifically to um, like recognizing that there are class interests that are different within the black community and building with like um, sharecroppers or building with actual poor folks. Um, and then, but they weren't just building as if there was nothing there. There was a like social history, dang, I'm sorry. <laughs> just <laughs> There was social history of resistance and building that had already existed, like, like a memory of reconstruction basically um, that folks were leaning on. And there was, yeah, there was just building that was happening with the sharecroppers union that they could, that the communists could then build on top of or build with. And they had several tactics basically. Um, and so some of them that, that really stuck out to me was they did a like youth communist uh, programming for, for the children of young, uh, for the children of like sharecroppers, right? Um, and they also did like night schools for folks that were interested in learning more. Um, they circulated like press, like newspapers. Um, and these newspapers, when I say circulated, um, like black folks in the South would basically be writing to these communists as they were, you know, as they were going back and forth to the North to just ask them, could you just bring more newspapers? And basically these newspapers would travel um, like through communities. And because they were eventually considered contraband, they would hide them in trees. They would hide them behind like fence in fence posts. Um, and then, of course, not everybody could read, so um, they would gather together and read aloud these newspapers. And some of these newspapers specifically had, like, stories about the Caribbean and Africa. Like, <laughs> um, and so it's really interesting because uh, Kelly was able to find, like, people reminiscing about um, the papers that they like to read, basically. And it was like, oh, you know, this this particular publication had like stories about our people um, was like one of the very super interesting quotes. Um, so yeah, so there was uh, the reliance on publications. They also started their own publications. Um, what else did they do? Oh, some of the really interesting stuff that they did was they have, uh, the Communist Party had an international... Um, labor defense that had two <laughs> branches. So there was the martial art, like the armed and the unarmed branches. And these people would like get into gunfights with police and win. Um, <laughs> and so like when they would do things like that, that would drive up, you know, a lot of interest and um, a lot of excitement basically on like who are these people that have like that are armed and fight the police and win um oh and then the other like major thing was that they came through um right they were already present and the scottsboro boys um scandal happened and basically that was a handful of black boys uh that were accused of rape um and very much under under risk of like being killed <laughs> by a mob and by the by a yeah so it's Jim Crow South they're accused of raping two white girls and uh, the NAACP and a couple of other organizations were vying for who's going to represent and who's going to tell these boys the stories and who's going to work with the families and it's the communist party that was able to negotiate with the parents and ended up defending um like arranging the lawyers and also uplifting and making an international case for the Scottsboro boys and they a part of it is kind of like okay it's obvious that this is a tactic to talk about black people in the south and the communist party um not just in the south but like internationally um but at the same time, they were doing what they could and eventually, um, like, got the boys off. Um, but so, yeah, so I feel a little bit complicated reading that history. And I appreciate that Kelly is forthright about that. Um, but also, it's very clear that that was a tactic. So they were thinking on multiple levels of, like, 
you know, we're going to talk about wages and work and uh, unemployment lines and like, we need food, like that's that that very instant material need. We want to develop people and invest in people in terms of like information, training, um, programming for young people. Um, and we want to appeal specifically to the like class interests of poor black people and make it very apparent that we are for poor black people. And I guess the final thing that I want to, I just remember this and it's such a huge detail <laughs> in the book. Um, but the, the thing that drove up black interests and um, black interests in the communist party was their unabashed like anti-racism and pro-black self-determination. Um, but when they did that, they alienated white people in the South um, and other, and even other uh, socialist organized, like, so they're not socialists, but they even alienated like other organizations that had more socialist tendencies. And it's just very interesting to read about, um, like there were even splits um, within socialist uh, organizations in terms of on the, on the race question, basically. And they even were talking about like miscegenation or like interracial um, things. And so it's just interesting to, to see that they were really committed to like black self-determination to the point where they were they were alienating not just white people but other black people that also didn't agree with miscegenation. <laughs> um so it's all very interesting and the yeah, it's all very interesting. <laughs> so let me make sure I'm hearing all of this. You had I didn't cuz I don't know this history. So in the 1930s, you have it sounds like uh, not 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 necessarily black folks, but like folks who are a part of the Communist Party, uh, going to the South um, and organizing around communist ideas with poor black people uh, to support and foster revolutionary movement, right? For black self determination, uh, and that you know they're using all these various tactics that includes youth programming, newsletters, blah blah blah, um, and. Yeah, and it's, I, I guess I, so yeah, first is that, am I hearing that right? <laughs> that it was folks coming in and doing place-based Black organizing with folks? Yeah, so it was white organizers that were coming in from the North, um, meeting Black people, and then doing, it was also culturally relevant work too. Um, hold on, I need to get this cat up. <laughs> I hope I hope we leave that meowing. <laughs> I hope the cat meow makes it in. <laughs> um, that's really fucking cool. And it wasn't even necessarily that the white communists understood what they were doing <laughs> was that. Um, and it wasn't because they were like really smart about organizing. It was the black folks that they were encountering were skeptical and had questions and were inserting like, okay, but you don't know what it's like down here. You know what I'm saying? And like doing that type of education and work for those organizers to understand what would actually work um, there. And so it was very much um, these black folks and, and, and Kelly is really interesting in this too, where he talks about, um, like mythologies. And so some of these myths that would come up um, that Black folks would have in terms of why they would be open to people, white people from the North coming down. And it had to do with like reconstruction, memories of reconstruction and civil war, um, where they hadn't lost faith necessarily that the North would come back and finish uh, reconstruction, right? And so this idea about these white folks coming through, like, it's not, you know what I'm saying? So it's not like, um, like white saviorsness. Well, it kind of is like white saviors, but it like is rooted in um, like experiences and stories that they heard from their own elders or, you know, that come out of their own experiences in terms of, you know, the white folks are going to come back from the North and they're going to like finish things off. And so layering on top, um, what the Communist Party was telling them that there's like this international proletariat and they're like totally down to like work on your issue. <laughs> you know what I mean? To like liberate um, you all because this is like a, a an internal colony basically to the United States. It's a nation of black people that's being oppressed. 
like, yeah, <laughs> okay. Like th there's going to be an international proletariat revolution and we're going to be a part of that. Like it, it seemed like it fit in with, um, with these other myths and mythologies that folks already had in that, in that area of the world, you know, in that area of the United States and out of those experiences. They were very much injecting though what they knew was going to work um, it wasn't these white people thinking, hey, black people, you guys are really amazing at, I don't know, songs. Uh, do songs. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like Dance and sing for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's striking me is is um, another sort of when I think communist, in addition to the like the white old man or like white men trope that I sort of have in my mind or impression or stereotype, it's also like people who are obsessed with comparing uh, papers that they've read and like how much theory do you know and it becomes this very like uh, purity based ide ideological and in, in some in rather un quickly and helpful ways and it sounds like this was much more about holding space around shared values and ideals um, and it, it would that the, that this was an era where the communist party was uh, clearly like thinking through a lot of things. I don't mean to like dismiss theory. Like I, I think ideas are important, but that it was about it being rooted in actual practice of, of struggle as opposed to just like what I, I experience a lot of now of just like talking about Lenin. <laughs> so it wasn't all of CPUSA even, and it wasn't necessarily all of the communist party. Um, it was specifically the Alabama communist party. That was this um, open and actually radical <laughs> and actually thinking about what was practical on the ground. And also uh, what you just said too reminded me that there were people from Alabama that were sent to Moscow um, to like get political education, <laughs> like, like going to school there um, to be developed as like communist party leaders and then sent back. Um, so there was like, there was an, there was investment in theory and ideology, but also even before the, the Comintern decided to do this, there were black people already, um, like inserting themselves right into this international proletariat and having these discussions and, um, making the case that there is an oppressed black nation within the United States. And then that's the reason why com the Comintern, the Third International, like made this decision to like send resources down um, to the South. So it's all very interesting that it's like nothing comes out of the blue. Totally, <laughs> totally. And I know that we know from history and from our lived experience currently that all of this incredible organizing, right? Like putting an international spotlight on, you know, racism in the U.S. and uh, having uh, militant action with, you know, clashes with police. We know that this organizing work, this militant organizing work is met with repression, right? And so what were the ways that the Alabama communists, what, what did they face? What sort of uh, repression did they experience um, in their in their daily organizing? So it's really interesting because it was coming up from multiple angles. Um, so obviously there were like super racist white people who were terrorizing black folks and any and non-black people, basically other white people that were sympathetic, right, to black self-determination. But there were also like the bougie black people um, who didn't appreciate people from especially outsiders stirring up the pot and like bringing up class consciousness for like poor black the poorer black people um and so there were there were instances of repression on like from the churches from even like the NAACP or like business owners like these kind of more traditional um cons not conservative but like con conservative black folks <laughs> um that basically were didn't appreciate um, the stirring of the pot. So yeah, so the repression was particularly brutal, but like I said, this uh, international labor defense group got into gunfights with the cops, um, called out the KKK, defended black people against the KKK. And it was like, these were, it wasn't just like white communists in the IDL, it was, you know, black people, like they were training people up to like, this cat's trying to get back in. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you were saying these were black folks 
Um, it wasn't like resisting and defending against the KKK. So because they were okay with, quote, race mixing, and even even if it wasn't, quote, miscegenation or like sexual race mixing, that was something that like stuck in the craw of so many people to the point where um, where it was just like a huge deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. And even the anti-communist like rhetoric was all around, do you want like black men to sleep with your daughters? It was like that level of um, appealing to, to that really base uh, disgust or whatever that um, white and black people uh, in the South might've had towards uh, race mixing. And uh, so, yeah, so there was that level of, um, like, it's informal. It's like a social repression um, and stigma that got that got heavily laid onto the communists. So it came, like, from the government. It came, interper- like, interpersonally. It came from, like, socially, like, all of these different ways of being... Um, attacked or discredited or having these ideas discredited in some way. And uh, eventually towards the end of the book, and there's reasons why the Communist Party started declining, um, at least in Alabama. And a part of it was repression, uh, definitely. Um, But also it got to the point where people weren't out with their party affiliation, um, but they were committed to the work to the point where they were in unions. They would like situate themselves in change-making positions, um, but they might not have been like super out as communists. And that also happened with like publications. So there was like a publication that got started that wasn't explicitly communist, but it's very clear that the people that were writing um, had those sympathies basically. Uh, But the, the effects of the repression uh, was that folks weren't as out as communists, um, but they were still doing the work and still had those values. And a part of the reason why um, the beginning of the decline uh, for the Alabama Communist Party was uh, World War II and this attempt at a united front with liberals and socialists. And to do that, you needed to disregard like the black self-determination stuff. It's too divisive. Yeah. <laughs> the liberals. Yeah. <laughs> So what was your main takeaway from the book in a few sentences? My main takeaway from this book is not coming to an area thinking that you have all the answers, being super open to the traditions um, and histories that folks already have and the, the cultural memory that folks already have and really doing work that is relevant even culturally to folks and is like materially, materially addressing and relevant um, for their, for their interests. Um, So yeah, I think that that's, that's my main takeaway. And the book gives you a lot of details and a lot of examples of different tactics. I think that it's, it's really good to revisit it's really good to, to, yeah, to think through, wow, they did this in the 30s <laughs> when we're still like trying to, to hone in and do it again, you know? Yeah. And I think that there's something really beautiful when, I mean, from what I took away from the, the little that I read from this book is that it really was organizing people that just had everything and nothing to lose, right? Like, People were facing unemployment. People were facing horrible work conditions. Um, And we saw just like this mass movement of organizing workers, organizing the unemployed. And um, we also saw a lot of um, black women in leadership positions in the Communist Party there. And I think we the ways that we saw them in leadership was mostly around the relief committees that they were um, organizing in in communities. And it really makes me think of a lot of the organizing work that's been happening today in in 2020 around mutual aid efforts with um, people um, needing food, groceries, uh, clothing, uh, masks, hands, you know, just like anything that is... uh, essential right now for people to get through their 
daily life, lived experiences. So yeah, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how, you know, how has this book and this history really influenced the ways that you personally organize or, or aspire to organize in, in your work today? Yeah, it's definitely aspirational, but also it's interesting to think about the work that I've already been doing in light of this book, like things that are practical and relevant. Um, So with like Liberation Library, we send books that are requested by young people. We don't pick like some um, no shade on adult programs that do books to prisoner projects, Um, but the capacity that, um, that they might have is like they'll get a genre of like a request for a genre and then they'll pick a book for you. Um, Whereas we felt like, you know, we really wanted to get what the young person wants. And so they just give us the request and we'll do our best to fill it um, versus like trying to, trying to assume or dictate um, what young people want to read basically. So it seems like, I mean, the communist party in this book was like addressing, you know, people starving and things like that um so it seems like it may not be comparable but in terms of like being confined in a place where you have so few choices um the fact that we can at least give young people a choice um and fill a direct need um that fills like their soul or their imagination um as they request it uh feels really i feel it felt connected to me in this way where it was like okay we're doing Something very minor, but something um, that kind of is in this tradition of like self-determination. I think that's totally connected to the book. I think that that's a very clear connection between what does it mean when you work with and listen to and follow the leadership of people that are directly impacted by oppressions, right? Like that's what it means to, you know, provide provide and collaboratively create printed publications, um, uh, political education together, right? Like it's not just, right. When I thought of relief committees, I immediately thought of the, the, um, the, the pandemic that we're facing today. So I immediately thought of that relief, but I think that there is a sense there is relief is also connected to that educate the political education and the, and the, and the access to telling your story, right? the access to um to being able to share your story on a on a um on a larger platform. So I think it's super relevant to what Liberation Library is doing. Hey, yay. <laughs> um but also snap snaps on bringing up the role of women in the Communist Party and also the role of young people. Um so young people were especially elevated and wanted to be invested in um by party leadership. And women were not turned away, basically, you know, for providing leadership and um, emphasizing the things that they wanted to work on. And so if that was around material relief or these relief um, committees, um, then that was that was what was going on. But also, like, there's a really amazing story in here about a mother who um, wanted her child to basically go to the communist um, like youth camp and not necessarily the like NAACP one. And it was because she recognized and knew that like the communists were for poor, like poor people like her. And she wanted her children to get this, you know, political education and this political development. Um, So there's a lot of like, like it's not accidental. It's not unintentional in terms of black people coming into uh, formation with the communists um, and making it, you know, relevant for them and using and knowing and seeing it as a vehicle for their own liberation. So I think that that is something that's extremely prescient for me because I'm also, um, these are very new commitments for me with the Democratic Socialists of America and the Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus um, in the DSA. So yeah, so this book specifically is something that I'm like getting a lot of people to read with me again <laughs> because I want to look at truly what does it mean to build a multiracial working class that affirms and invests in the leadership of black people, of poor black people, um and does it in a way that like 
honors the traditions, the culture and the skepticisms, right, of poor black people. Like I, this is like what I'm going to be reading again and again, basically, in, in uh, conversations and having conver- have centered in conversations with a bunch of people. So, yeah, we're going to take over DSA. <laughs> Ooh. I think in a lot of ways, I think you've, you've already spoken to how the book is really relevant to 2020. And so I don't want to like go even further into it, but maybe just echoing some of the stuff that I'm hearing too. Like as you were talking, I was just flash all these images and moments uh, of the last year have been flashing in front of me. Everything from, yeah, like AOC and the DSA being like lifted up and this like we're seeing, you know, all around the world, people going out and 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 marching and protesting and fucking shit up for Black lives, right? And that it's important to recognize there is a history here and to bring it back to that quote you shared at the beginning. I, I think I either read the intro of the same book or it was another quote about like, yeah, like you when you only focus on the shoreline, you miss the ocean, and just th- that there are lessons that we can uh, that we can learn from and apply today. This isn't brand new, even though it feels unprecedented. When you take it to like the local, wh- what people have actually lived through and survived and resistance resisted in, there's there's so much that we can, we've inherited in terms of of lessons and and struggle. I'm rambling now, but I guess there's obvious connections of how it applies to 2020. Is there any more like nuance you want to bring forward around how this book, if more people were reading it, how it might impact the work that is happening right now and how it might be useful? That was a long way of me saying like all these people that moved to Minneapolis, right? Like (laughs) don't, this isn't saying move to Minneapolis, white man, with your communist ideals and like work with young black people. What can folks, especially folks that are like newly radicalized and in the streets um, that care about black lives, like what does this mean? Um, And what does it not mean? Awesome. Yeah, definitely that what black folks in this, context needed was investment. It didn't need leadership necessarily. It it definitely didn't, they didn't need leadership. They just needed investment. And so when the common turn, when this third international said that we are going to invest and build there, that's like, that's the, just give people money, um, give people like, you know, leadership development, but not in a condescending way, like literally invest in their, in their, path of like developing these ideas and bringing their histories, their cultural traditions, um, bringing those with them into um, this container that could hold, you know, that could hold multiplicities, basically multiple ways of being and doing the work. Um, And so that's, yeah, it's totally not, don't, don't come into a community expecting to tell people or like, I don't know, I've just been hearing like some really intense things about these people that only read books trying to say that we're going to go into poor communities or poor black communities and teach them about class consciousness. And that whenever I hear that, I like want to scream because it's like, yo, they can, (laughs) poor black people can explain and grasp these concepts faster and better than and articulate it better than you you know what I mean if all your experience is just reading books um so that type of condescension like really needs to be checked at the door um you cannot be going into uh communities thinking that you're yeah that you're some kind of savior it really this really is not a book about white communists coming to the south and teaching anything to anybody it was about like collaboration and seeing what would actually work and practicing those things. So the practice, I think, is the emphasis for me too. So yeah. I think that's a great answer. Well, thank you so much, Bettina, for being on our show today. It was a really incredible conversation. I learned so much about Black communism in Alabama in the 1930s, and I feel like there is a lot of connection to what is happening in 2020 today and how we can organize in really authentic and, and, and impactful ways. And so I really appreciate your, your nuance and ideas around this, uh, around this book. As always, we'd love to close out this episode with one of your favorite passages from the book. So if you could do us the honor of reading your favorite passage. Sure. And it's just two sentences. So the communist movement in Alabama resonated with the cultures and traditions of black working people. Yet at the same time, it offered something fundamentally different. 
It proposed a new direction, a new kind of politics that required the self-activity of people usually dismissed as inarticulate. And for this reason, communists bumped heads with the African-American community's self-appointed spokespersons or the better class of Negroes. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books to help grow our movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionist organizers. We'll be back next week with another episode next Sunday, same time, same place. Want to learn about a specific book? Email us your suggestions at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, Give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at LitReviewShy. Financial support for the production of this podcast is thanks to our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thelitreview. Keep reading.